Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson, and welcome to Jake's Takes. But we flew from JFK this morning. They canceled flights out of Westchester County because of uh, lack of passengers. So we had to get a town car ride down to JFK to fly here, where we are in Naples right now. And it's a ghost town. JFK, it's a ghost town. And my gosh, it's just, it's, it's How was the flight? Was, uh, was there anybody on the flight? Oh, it was maybe half full, maybe a third. Beautiful plane, jet blue, uh, a new plane, clean, smelled great, smelled like it had never been flown before. And we got in, wiped it down. We wore our masks and everything's, everything's fine. The one good thing that's going to come out of this gym, I think, is that people are going to pay more attention to cleanliness. They're going to pay more attention to uh, respecting other people's spaces. And maybe maybe we're going to be able to clean up some of the cities and the city streets that are starting to uh, starting to smell around the country. So maybe that, that could be a good thing. I think so, Peter. I think that there's the, going to be quite a focus on personal hygiene as it, as it, uh, in the context of how it impacts other people, not just yourself, but people around you. Yeah. And I hope, hopefully we're going to get you to shower once a once a week now instead of just once a month so <laughs> all right well let's get let's get started well, the, on the, the, the first and the 15th are my shower days <laughs> well let's get started i'm i'm so happy and so excited about this segment of the podcast i'm joined right now by the founder and publisher of the fantastic global golf post mr jim nugent jim thank you for for joining us you Global Golf Post came out yesterday with uh, with their edition again, the weekly edition we get every Monday, and it had a quite an interesting article called "The New World Order," where your fantastic writing staff has put together a piece that I think is going to make a lot of people sit up and take notice, especially with what we're going through in the golf world with this uh, Corona pandemic. Well, first of all, Peter, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm honored to do so. And uh, yes, our our weekly uh, Monday edition of Global Golf Post uh, uh, delivered a, a five-piece package about what the men's professional game is going to look like when we get on the other side of this pandemic, because it's going to change and it's going to change in ways that uh, uh, your average golfers throughout uh, America, but throughout Europe, are not going to recognize. The pandemic, sadly, has had a tremendously bad impact on the PGA Tour. But as bad as it's been on the PGA Tour, it's been extremely uh, detrimental to the fortunes of the European Tour. And it's likely to bring about some form of consolidation going forward between the PGA Tour and the European Tour, the likes of which we've never seen before, the likes of which we've never imagined before. I highly recommend everybody get this piece. And if you don't already subscribe to Global Golf Post, it's very easy. You just uh, go online, globalgolfpost.com, and uh, it's going to come to your inbox in an email every Monday morning. And, and when I read this piece, Jim, I was, I'm obviously very interested because being a longtime PGA Tour member and now Champions Tour member and also being involved with NBC and Golf Channel on the golf media side, uh, I found it to be just such an in-depth, compelling piece. I started and, and couldn't stop 
because it affects all of us that love the game, whether you're on the PGA Tour, you watch the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, even in the amateur game. And and to me, it just uh, it really touches all the bases of what we want to know what's going to happen on the end on the backside of this pandemic. You know, nobody's quite sure what's going to happen. Nobody's quite sure what's going to look like. And and we advance a number of different uh, theories or suggestions or opportunities, but it's going to change. But fortunately, uh, and you know this so much better than I do, Peter, right now the leadership of the PGA Tour uh, is personified best by Jay Monahan is uh, uniquely qualified to step up to this challenge, to work with the leadership of the European Tour and try and figure out what's best for the global game. And there has been, uh, because of this pandemic, and also because of the threat of this uh, professional or premier golf league that emerged earlier this year, there has been a, a level of cooperation, collaboration, communication between the leaders of the game on both sides of the pond, the likes of which we've never really seen before. And I think everyone is pulling in the same direction, trying to figure out what's best for the game, not what's best necessarily for the European Tour or the PGA Tour or the Champions Tour, what's best for the men's professional game. And I have a great deal of confidence uh, in Jay Monahan and, and Keith Pelley's uh, ability to imagine something that's different, but every bit as important and impactful as the pro game has been for all of your life and mine. When I came on the tour in 1977, Dean Beeman, former player on the PGA Tour, was the commissioner. We then went to the next commissioner, Tim Fincham, and now we're with Jay Monahan and all three of those gentlemen, in, at least in my experience of, of working with them as a PGA Tour player, did fantastic jobs. But in a way, in a way, I feel sorry for Jay, who's got such an incredible personality, just a couple of years in the job just completed a new media deal, and now this pandemic hits, and he is navigating this landscape, uh, I think, brilliantly because he he's smart. He's a golfer, comes from a golf background, family golf background, but he's intelligent, and he understands what the, the game of golf means to golf fans like like you and me, and I, as you stated, he's doing a wonderful job, but wow. Talk about the hand that he's been dealt so early in his tenure as a commissioner of the PGA Tour. Can you imagine? No, I can't. You know, he is still uh, on his honeymoon period, and all of a sudden, boom, he gets hit with this. And in a moment in time, that was to be so very celebratory because uh, he had finalized the television deals, and they were extraordinary, and they were going to benefit the, uh, all aspects of the PGA Tour. But uh, he's being tested. The advantage that he has, um, you know, Dean was great in his time and Tim was tremendous in developing the tour in the Tiger Woods area. Jay is not only liked, he is respected by all constituencies on the PGA Tour. And that's probably something that, you know, your listeners don't necessarily understand. Certainly he is, is well liked by uh, the players. And that's an important constituency. You've served on the policy board. You know that. But you also have to deal with the sponsors. And you have to deal uh, with the media. There's a lot of moving parts to Jay's job. And in each one of those parts, he brings a great deal of credibility, respect, and admiration. Uh, I think he's going to steer the tour through this. It isn't going to be easy, and nobody's quite sure you know, when we're going to come out on the other side. But I have a great deal of confidence that when we do, uh, we'll look back and say, you know what? Jay Monahan helped us get here. In the uh, five-piece 
article that is the New World Order in Global Golf Post this week. The writers do an absolute fabulous job. John Hopkins, Ron Green, Steve Eubanks, yourself. But what really surprised me is Steve Eubanks' article was how he dove into the fact that the European tour is in financial trouble. I would have had no idea as successful as the European tour has been and how much growth we've seen out of the European tour in the last 10 years. Uh, I, I was, I was blown away and to learn that myself. And, and I'm, I'm as immersed in the game as you are. I, did, did that surprise you to hear that? That's where the, the piece began, Peter. We started to get rumblings from players and caddies and agents that, uh, something was amiss. And so that's when we started to dig in. And, you know, because I'm in the golf business, I had a little bit of an inkling that things weren't quite as rosy as they might have been perceived. Um, but I don't think I understood that they are serious and, and potentially dire. Not necessarily because of anything the tour has done wrong, although there certainly have been uh, some missteps along the way. But the pandemic is is just treated them so brutally and put them in a position where it's it's not clear that their business model could continue. But your point of view, which Steve was making, is is precisely the case. Most people assume that the European Tour, although not quite you know the uh, equivalent of the PGA Tour, was vibrant and healthy and doing just fine with a great list of sponsors and turning out you know players like Roy McIlroy and John Rahm and Tommy Fleetwood. This package will come as a surprise to people who thought that, and they'll step back and say, "Whoa, that's that's not what I thought about the European Tour." It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. Fans are fired up and making sure they show it. They're rattling loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. You know, I've been a pretty good ball striker my whole career, and I think one of the strengths of my game has been my driving. I've been pretty good off the tee. I hit a lot of fairways. But I always know that my first drive of the day is going to be a good one, in comfort, luxury, and in style, because I'm going to and from the golf course in my Lexus GX460. I've been a brand ambassador of Lexus now for over 30 years, and in my opinion, it's the best vehicle on the road today. Now, I may have had a few body parts replaced over the years, but that's just in my 65-year-old body. My Lexus needs nothing but routine maintenance, and that's just the way I like it. The one thing that I have taken for granted my whole tour career, because I was born in the United States and I played predominantly on the PGA Tour, I would say 95% of my golf played on the PGA Tour. We travel within the United States. We're so lucky. And when I look at the European Tour today, they stage 45, I think, I think 45, 46 events in 31 countries around the world. Now, that's all before this pandemic hit. And, and that's staggering for me to think about going through all of the, all of the TSA, or I guess it wouldn't be called TSA over there, but, but all the border patrol. Can you imagine all the different type of colored money you would have in your wallet? 
<laughs> playing the European tour, visiting <laughs> 31 countries, different shapes, different colors. You'd think you're probably playing a, a year-long game of Monopoly, but it's amazing to think of the res- resiliency and the commitment the European tour players have to travel the way they do. We don't do that on the PGA Tour. We're, in a way, we're a bit spoiled. No, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think spoiled is too strong a word. Uh, if you played on the European Tour, your passport sure would be filled up. But it cuts both ways. You know, in, in this environment, if you travel from one country to another, uh, you could be looking at a 14-day quarantine. That's really, at the end of the day, what uh, eliminated the, the Canadian Open from the PGA Tour calendar was if you crossed into the Canadian border, you're looking at 14 days. Uh, I talked to the guy that runs Golf Canada, and he was pretty witty about it. He said, you know, I'd love to have Rory stay in my basement for 14 days, but I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, multiply that by, what would you say, 45 events? Yeah, 45 countries so, yeah, in this environment. And then it's also, you know, it's good because it's made it truly a global tour, but it, it, it's really difficult for television, particularly in Europe. The time zones are shifting. In the United States, your golf channel, your NBC, you know, you got to worry about three time zones, right? When you're Keith Pelly and you're playing from London all the way to Shanghai, that's a lot of time zones, and it's hard for the viewer to get into a rhythm of, okay, it's 10 a.m. Sunday morning, can I turn on Golf Channel and be sure of seeing them playing live somewhere? And, and and that's not the case when you're spread all over the world like they are. Yeah, and this, the economic upheaval that we ha- are going to see, not only in the world, but obviously in the game of golf, due to the coronavirus shutdown, that just puts an incredible financial strain on individuals and businesses and sports leagues around the world I think back to the Premier Golf League, which was floated, I think, at the end of last year. And I I completely thought it was uh, not going to happen simply because the PGA Tour is too strong, the European Tour is strong, and they've been always in lockstep together. But now, with with this uh, shutdown, there is a possible partnership being talked about between the European Tour and the PGA Tour. I'm not sure if we would call it well, I, maybe do we call it a partnership or do we call it a uh, some, some sort of an agreement? I, I, I can't imagine that the European tour is going to just fold under the PGA tour. Can you? No, I don't think so. Um, in the package that we put together, John Hopkins tossed about a lot of words. Is it a merger, a reverse merger, an acquisition? Is it a subsidiary or a subset? Nobody's quite sure what it's going to look like other than it's going to look different. Now, let me try a hypothesis on you because you and I are of the same generation. You recall many years ago, there used to be something on NBC during Wimbledon that was called Breakfast at Wimbledon. And they would take advantage of the time zone and you could wake up in the morning and watch some brilliant tennis from Wimbledon. Remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what if in July... It was breakfast from Great Britain for three three weeks in a row. The the Scottish Open, the Open Championship, and the Irish Open. And Jay had the foresight to schedule, I'll be careful with this word, but second-tier tournaments opposite that that provided playing opportunities for his membership. But the Stars went over and played two or three weeks in a row in Great Britain. 
And importantly, they played golf courses that you've either heard of, maybe played, or would like to play, be it St. Andrews, be it Portrush, be it uh, Carnoustie. I think there's opportunities like that where the two tours can get together and say, let's do what's good for the game. This would be good for television viewers. It would be good for players. It would be good for sponsors. It would be good for TV. I think those are the kinds of things that Jay and Keith are going to dig into to say, okay, let's just think differently than we ever have for the last 50 years. Well, it only makes sense to me, Jim, what you're saying, because European tour, the PGA tour, the LPGA tour, we're all in the same business. We're all trying to provide a great uh, entertainment package to golf fans. We're selling sponsorships. We're, we have media deals. And when you start looking at different tiered events, we, we kind of already have different event categories. And Ron Green points this out in his piece. We've got the majors, and then you've got your players' championship and your tour championship. And then maybe drop down to the World Golf Championships, Arnold Palmer Invitational, Nicholas's Memorial Tournament. And then you really got the rest. And because I know when I was a one of the good players on the PGA Tour, I always looked for the most impactful events to play in. Now, they didn't have the FedEx Cup when I played, but it only makes sense for each player to play where the top players play because those are the highest rated events to where you can get more FedEx FedEx Cup points to be able to move up the list. So I think if the a consolidation comes between Europe and the PGA Tour, I think you're only going to see a strengthening of these event categories as we move forward. I agree with you. You know, going back, Peter, to something you were intimately involved in, and that was Greg Norman's uh, effort to create a World Golf Tour, and, and the World Golf Championships uh, came as a result of that, and then the Premier Golf League. What we want as fans, what we want as television viewers, what we want as sponsors, we want to see the best of the best go up against each other 15, 17 times a year. Um, and anything that ha causes that to happen in this consolidation, I think would be applauded by everybody that has an interest in the men's pro game around the world. Doesn't matter where that takes place. Could be Bay Hill, uh, could be Muirfield, could be Pebble Beach, but it also could be St. Andrews and it also can be Portrush and, and other great golf courses in the British Isles. Uh, it could be London at Wentworth as well. So the more often we can get the very best of the very best playing against each other, but better for the global game. You've been involved in golf for so long. Uh, you you published Golf Week in the in the 90s and the early 2000s. You've worked with the PGA Tour, uh, the Juniors, American Junior Golf Association, Annika uh, Sorenstam Foundation. You're a big proponent of the of the amateur game. Uh, and let me just ask you a couple of questions. I, I really want to get your opinion on this. A fanless Ryder Cup this fall. Do you like it? Or do you not like that? I don't think it will be played fanless, Peter. Um, you've been there. You've covered it. You know it. The fans make the Ryder Cup on both sides of the pond. If there's no fans there, I don't think it's played. That's interesting. I'm, I'm in the same camp with you. I just think that um, having been involved in the Ryder Cup for so many years, it's all about the energy of the fans. And being on the ground, actually being in matches, playing, and also covering on TV, you actually can feel the energy and the atmosphere change whenever one team makes a couple of bogeys and loses some holes 
and you feel the momentum shift. And that's not just from the players. That's from the fans. So as much as I love the Ryder Cup, I just don't see it happening this year. It's already odd enough having the majors this fall and this winter, three of the four majors. But having a Ryder Cup without fans, I just I just don't see it. But let me ask you one other question. I'm going to let you go. In the piece, it talks about John Hopkins talks about the partnership with the PGA Tour and the European Tour. I'm not sure everybody understands that the PGA Tour does not control the Ryder Cup on this side of the Atlantic. The Ryder Cup is controlled by the PGA of America. Now, if this were to happen, a consolidation were to happen, maybe the PGA Tour gets a little bit more involved in what happens with the Ryder Cup. Because in Europe, the European Tour controls the Ryder Cup. So uh, there could be some interesting movement of, uh, of, of pieces on a board with the Ryder Cup. Most people don't understand that the Ryder Cup is jointly owned by the PGA Tour of Europe and the PGA of America, which is not the PGA Tour. And that's a thorn in the side of the PGA Tour because they participate very minimally in any of the great revenue that comes from that event. And yet, you know, on both sides, the vast majority of the players are playing on the PGA Tour. And so that is uh, going to be a very important card that gets played if this is a poker game. How does the PGA Tour get in on the Ryder Cup action? And I think most people uh, believe that if the Tour were to bring its muscle, its expertise uh, to the Ryder Cup, it could take uh, what is already arguably the greatest event in golf and elevate it even further. Jim, this has been an amazing piece in Global Golf Post. I loved it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and discussing it with us. And again, I highly recommend all of us that love the game of golf, read this piece because uh, as we're trying to wade our way through this this shutdown due to the pandemic, I think it's a, it's a great think piece. You've been here before, you know what to do. Keep your head on straight, don't let them get to you. Put a smile on Get rid of that frown, gotta suck it up, it's no time to melt down. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. The fans are fired up, making sure they show it. They're out in loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. I'm a sports nut, and if you're anything like me, the first thing you do every morning is grab your phone and check to see what may have happened overnight in the world of sports. But Mondays are for golf. Once the weekend is over and the golf tournaments around the world are complete, whether they're on the professional tours or in the amateur world, I know I'll find what I need on Global Golf Post. It comes to my email every Monday morning, delivering everything I need to know as I dissect what happened over that weekend. It also offers insight and analysis from experienced writers and contributors who are as committed to the game as I am. And it's pretty easy to sign up. Just log on to globalgolfpost.com and you're done. And for even more great content, you can subscribe to Global Golf Post Plus, which takes a deeper dive into the world of golf, exploring the people, places, and things that makes this game we love so intoxicating. And with Global Golf Post Plus, there's no advertising. 
Use the promo code JAKESTAKES when you sign up to receive 30% off your monthly subscription to Global Golf Post Plus. So remember, globalgolfpost.com. It's everything you're going to need to know about this game of golf. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. The fans are fired up, making sure they show it. They're rowdy and loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here, and we all know it. So what are the rules of the game of golf that you would change or maybe get rid of? The USGA updated the rules of the game back January 1, 2019. And while I think they've been pretty good, I think they've been well accepted. I'm not sure about the changing some of the names like water hazard or lateral water hazard to penalty area. I think that might have been a little bit unnecessary. But there's always been one rule in the game of golf that drives me crazy. And it adds to what I think is the biggest problem in the game right now is slow play. But The one rule that I would get rid of completely is the rule of out of bounds or white stakes that we see along the boundary of the golf course. I've always thought that out of bounds should be like a the penalty area or a lateral hazard as we we all grew up knowing in the game that if the ball leaves the property, if the ball leaves the golf course, if if it just crosses the white lines, all you do is find your ball drop it where it crossed or went out of the property and add one shot, like a ball that goes into a penalty area or a water hazard. I just find that it's happened to me on several occasions in tournaments where you hit a shot, it may be close to the out-of-bounds. You don't really know if it's out-of-bounds. You get up there, you find out that it is OB. Now you have to take the long, slow walk back to the tee to hit your hit your next shot. So I just think that that... That adds to slow play. We want to keep people moving in the game, and I think this is a great way to change it. The other rule, which I think is a bit controversial, it's not really even a rule, but a lot of people think it should be, is getting relief from a divot in your fairway. Now, when we play lift clean in place, you can only do that when you drive the ball in your fairway. If you miss it into the rough or maybe you hit a wild tee shot and you hit it one fairway over, you do not get to lift clean and place your ball. And maybe the situation should exist here to where if you do hit the ball off the tee in your fairway and it does come to rest in a divot, maybe we should all take relief like it's a a ground under repair. Because it does seem crazy to me that a group ahead of me, guy hits a good shot and then takes a big old deep divot, one you could you could twist your ankle in if you stepped in it, and they don't replace the divot. Or say they do replace the divot, but they do a poor job of of putting it in. Put, replacing a divot is like putting a puzzle piece in a crossword puzzle. You have to take your time. At least that's how I was taught. My father taught us how to do that. But is it fair for you to have to play from a crappy area from somebody that had played earlier, maybe earlier that day or or two weeks previous? So I'm a little bit on the fence about that. I'm not so sure. I just need more convincing. Another rule which changed with the USGA was 
dropping the ball. We used to just, well, back when I started, we used to drop the ball blindly over our shoulder. Then the USGA changed it to just drop the ball from shoulder height. Now you drop it from knee height, which to me seems just like an unnecessary change. I know the justification behind it was that the ball wasn't going to roll as far dropping from such a a shorter height from the ground that it's going to stay pretty much in that area. But there were rules that if the ball rolled too far, you could redrop it. So that's a curious one for me. But the last one that is a big part of professional golf and certainly across the world in all levels of golf is signing of your scorecard. Now, there have been some incredible cases of when players have signed the wrong scorecard and it cost them the tournament. Uh, Roberto DiVincenzo in the Masters comes the first one that comes to mind. But I always found it to be curious that we would have to be responsible for that little piece of paper in your back pocket, putting a score down for another player. I'm not ever really focusing on my playing competitor or the other guys in my group. I'm focused on me. I'm focused on my yardage. I'm focused on my on my score. I'm trying to post the best score I possibly can to win the tournament. But when I'm playing with, say, a Bubba Watson or a Arnold Palmer or a Brad Faxon, I'm not really wanting to focus on what they're doing. I don't, but that's my job and that's my duty. And we all do it, but sometimes you make a mistake. And that's happened to me before I made a mistake. The player caught it and they made the change. It's never happened to me where I've had a player sign an incorrect scorecard and have to accept the mistake I made. It would seem to me that if I'm keeping Brad Faxon's scorecard and I make a mistake and he signs the wrong card, maybe I should be the one <laughs> to be disqualified. I know that's that's way out there, that, that type of suggestion. But we have so many people, especially when you're in the final cup, couple final groups of a major or a PGA Tour or an LPGA Tour event, you've got people that are walking, they're, they're entering your score into a computer, you've got a walking leaderboard with you. It just seems to me that the hassle of having to go in and check your card seems to be a little bit anticlimactic, but it's been a part of the game for years and I doubt that will ever change. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Jake's Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Jacobson. These have been my takes. What are yours?